Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's good, y'all? This is Breeze Bruin from the Mighty Juggernauts. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Kell, hip-hop journalism on the highest level. Yeah, what's up? It's your boy, Joel Ortiz, and I want everybody to make sure that they subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Einenko. Yo, Tim, I hope all is well. You my guy. I know these interviews are not interviews. They're actually conversations, and I appreciate them all. Yeah. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ice-T. I want you to do something for me. Make sure you download and subscribe Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews. With Tim I and Cal. It is O fucking official. Alright? Stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library rap. The hip hop interviews with Tim I and Cal. It's cold. Yo, I don't care if you a thug or not. You ever fought a juggernaut? Thoughts travel faster than the speed that a sluggish shot. And fuck a one-on-one. Bring on four of y'all. Crippling torture you like a Klingon warrior. The Debbie Gods, Army of Pharaohs. Just a couple of names associated with my next guest. He's Abba B. And I want to welcome to him to the library rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Einico. Man, thank you for doing this. I know it's been a long time. Absolutely, man. It's an honor, Tim. Thank you for having me, brother. Hate clubs more than baby seals do. Your man raps, he's an amateur rock and so I want to start out with uh, something you recently uh, you, you tweeted out uh, after, uh, and it was about Pharaoh Monch, and you said how you've pretty much studied everything that he's written. Uh, what is it about, uh, what has it been about Pharaoh that kind of stands out to you as an MC? And when did he become, I guess, when did he become that artist that you were like, I got to study his craft? So on, when they released the first album, and uh, you know I heard Fudge Pudge, I thought it was cool. But it wasn't until I actually purchased the cassette that I heard him go absolutely crazy because, you know, Fudge Pudge, Who Stole My Last Piece of Chicken? I liked those records. They were fun, but I just thought they were like a new bohemian group. And at the time, I'm like 12 years old, but I'm already like a hip hop fanatic. And um, so when I got the tape, because I would try to get as much stuff as I could and uh you know back in the day we would steal tapes out the store and just try to get get everything that we could at all uh, by any means necessary so when i heard the album and i heard releasing hypnotical gases i i just felt like i'd stumbled across something that 
was insane. I, I just couldn't believe it because, I, I, you know, Rakim would get technical. All these guys would be technical. But I'd never heard anything like what Monch did on releasing hypnotical gases mm. and prisoners of war. It was just so next level. There was no way to describe it. There was no way to really wrap your head around it. It was just like a, a, an entirely new level. So I knew I fucked with Monch at that point and I loved this shit. But for some reason, it, it wasn't until the Stress album where I was like, this guy is, is the greatest of all time to me, in my opinion. And I think he's absolutely incredible. There is none. No more will exist when I emerge from the mist in which I was born into storm. Most of you can't even comprehend what I am saying to you, even in my human form, the message I'm relaying. Why do you choose to mimic these whack MCs? Why do you choose to listen to R&B? Why must you believe that something is fact just because it's played on the radio 20 times per day? My perception of poetical injection is ejaculation. And maybe it was more so because when stress dropped, I was taking emceeing a lot more seriously, mm. you know? So, you know, when I was 12, I'm not really focusing on trying to be an MC, but when I'm like 14, 15, that, that was huge to me. And, and that stress record just changed everything. Absolutely. That one song, Stress. When I first saw the video, I'll never forget. I was in my, my living room of my dad's house and it came on Rap City or whatever. And I was just like, oh my God, what the fuck? And it, it was it was just totally crazy, man. So so just the way he he was saying things. And it's wild too because you know on 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 Prisoners of War, he's like Wake up to the mathematics of an erratic rap, rejuvenated, a rhyme, automatic, poetical, medical, medical. He's really rapping. But on stress, he's he. it's almost like poetry or something because he's just like, you will now consider me the apocalyptic one. After this rhyme, henceforth, there is none. And, and that, just that was like enough to get me being like, this guy is like a wizard. He's not even real. Like, this is fucking crazy. So that's what totally altered my, my course. And then when the stress album, when I saw the whole thing together, like the cover and all that shit, that was just like, that was just a peak of, of, you know, imagination and inspiration and all that. So, well, you, you know, you're from, you're from Connecticut, you know, as we mentioned, we're, we're both the same age. So, you know, obviously grew up at the time where records are being released at, certain moments in our lives and we kind of right. don't know like you know like kind of don't know the importance of it at the time because we're so young and you know whatever but then you kind of realize the importance as you get older but uh what was i mean yeah what where you, you know you talked about a little bit but where were you getting your 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 music from and then also what was what was it about what, what i guess what for connecticut what was the scene like amongst your friends in terms of you know copying these tapes or were you like kind of a lone wolf on that aspect or was it a group of you that kind of were able to 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 talk about hip-hop yeah i always i always gravitated towards people who obviously were 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 really into hip-hop and so every i moved around a lot as a kid my parents were divorced and there was a lot of moving around there was a lot of change in schools and shit like that so i always connected right away with people who were into hip-hop and in those times you know this was obviously pre-internet and this was like the 80s and 90s so there there was no just finding shit on the internet or finding stuff easy and as a matter of fact 
there was a lot of pushback initially about hip hop. Mm-hmm. Like if you listen to, you know, commercial stations, I remember this commercial station up here and they little they literally had one of those radio buffers, like the little commercials in between. It was like more hits without any of that rap crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah we like had that. Literally. Yeah, we had that too. I mean, Z one hundred down here was like something essentially something like an absolutely no hip hop, like that type of stuff. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so there was huge pushback, and then record stores would would treat it like a fucking like a, a plague. You know what I'm saying? Like you go into a, a record store to buy some shit. And they were just super funny style about it, especially up here in Connecticut. And so where I found initially in the 80s, um, there was a guy named Doc Nine who was like the equivalent of Connecticut's Mr. Magic. And he had a radio show on 91.7 WHUS in Yukon, University of Connecticut. Um, and Doc Nine would be early, early on, you know, that's that's where I first heard my real hip-hop my dad would stay up with me helping me tape the shows at night that's dope and even after yeah even after i fell asleep my dad would stay up because my dad was young he had me when he was 18 so he was still a young dad you know he was like in his early 20s when when this was going on so he would stay up with the cassette with my little boombox and tape the shows for me so you know i had all of the shit early on you know everything um but, you know, I remember the first time, like, hearing, like, Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, the show and all that on Doc Nine's show. And then in the 90s, I was still very dependent on uh, college radio, on 91.7 WHUS specifically. You know, they, they, we, had, we had this thing, which was called Urban Styles, and that meant every weeknight at a certain time at, like, 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., Urban Style slot started. And all of the DJs would play either dance hall or hip-hop or R&B, mm-hmm. you know. But a lot of the DJs up there, you know, um, my man DJ Zop and, and DJ Boogie, those guys were, like, you know, legends to me. And I would listen to their shows. And as a matter of fact, I used to try to call into their shows and rhyme and shit. <laughs> and, you know, they would treat me like the little bro. they give me the little brother treatment and treat me, you know, because I call in so much and request so much shit. But, you know, they showed me love. And ultimately, I used to go up there and I started my own radio show up there and they were my mentors. Um, so it, it was really dope. That, But that's where I was getting most of my hip hop and also MTV raps. And then when Connecticut finally received BET in the early 90s, that's where I was getting a lot of my hip hop from Rap City and everything like that. But um, th- it, it was a huge thing, man. Uh, we, we were so fucking hungry for it. Uh, me and my friends, like we, it, it was, it was like religion to us. Like we took it very serious trying to find it. We took it very serious with the magazines, with all the shit. So what was your, I mean, what, actually, what, what was your reaction when it started to, um, I guess quote unquote blow up right where like eventually in the 90s you had you know I went through a uh, you know I'm sure a lot of people went through this phase but like if it was on TV I thought it had to be shit right it's because it's commercial and you know you also had the shiny suit syndrome uh, happening at the same time so like I gravitated towards more of the underground stuff anyway uh, with like Blackstar and Pharaoh and you know and all those guys um, what was your immediate reaction to like when it was when it became more acce- I guess ultimately more accessible to you uh, on TV and it wasn't getting this pushback about like we you know we're we're not going to play hip hop or we're going to you know di- we're going to put the uh, we're going to bury the CDs deep in the crate so maybe someone will find it. I remember it, all that started to change <clears throat> around ninety seven. Ninety seven specifically was the was the point where I really noticed it heavy 
because 96 still had a lot of really, really incredible shit. But I started to see it creep in in 96 where, you know, people were trying to go a little more commercial. Even Nas would, you know, Nas changed it up a little bit on It Was Written, which is a fantastic album. And I don't want anyone to misconstrue that because I love It Was Written. But the sound changed. It changed from underground, you know, harder hip hop to a little more polished, a little more palatable, a little more shiny. You know what I'm saying? That's that's what happened. Fucking Street Dreams and all that. That type of record is 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 by Puff's design. Ultimately, that's from Puff's influence. Right. And and you know that's what started to happen. And um, so I I think that it cre- at that point in time, when you're a young man, when you're a teenager you some most most teenagers have have the the natural inclination to rebel and say fuck the system fuck the commercial shit and that's what happened with me i was super underground my friends were super underground i was rolling with this crew alien nation who you know supernatural was in phoenix orion all these guys that was i was down with them and um all of that shiny suit shit felt like the enemy it felt like our ops for lack of a better word you know and and it was uh <laughs> it was it was crazy man it, it was like we didn't want to hear any of that shit there were certain records that we liked no matter what um and you know when biggie would drop an album um you know there were joints that we gravitated towards and joints that we thought were corny and um you know for for me it was always biggie with premiere that i loved the most and then I don't know. Biggie was an anomaly, man, because even at the height of my disdain for all that commercial shit, I still love, you know, hypnotizing all Biggie's records and all that. You know what I mean? So he, he kind of was like he was an exception to the rule. But a lot of the other stuff, like, for example, I liked Mace later on, like when I think about it in nostalgic form. But at the time when it came out, I like I was like somebody broke the rules i was like yo how the fuck can this happen this dude can't be rapping like this this is unacceptable you know now i love it i listen to <laughs> you know what i'm saying i listen to those old quote unquote jiggy records and now i'm like yeah 98 that was great you know what I mean? <laughs> but back then i was like how could this happen this is not a this is i won't stand for this you know what i'm saying i was writing diss records to dudes who didn't know a 14 year old or you know what was i 17 year old me and and it was just it it just felt like a line in the sand. I had I had songs. I I did a whole version. I wrote a, a version of the bridge is over, dissing all like the you know the the shinier rappers and shit. <laughs> right, same thing. Like I think like I there's points where like it was if, if I was with my friends and they're driving the car and that you know they would play the radio and something would come out. I'm like fuck, it turned us off. And now in hindsight, I'm like, eh, it wasn't that bad. You know. <laughs> Kind of right, kinda. right, exactly, exactly. Tell me about you know you, you, you talked about you talked about kind of a collective you were in, but t- tell me about I was trying to figure out um, the actual origins of uh, of the the demigods. I mean, it seems I know members have come and gone, uh, but can you actually tell me the, the 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 beginnings of the demigods and and why and how they were created? All right, so. Demigods was created by a few individuals and my man, Open Mike, who does all my graphics and my album covers, and he also raps on our records. It was pretty much Mike's. It, it came from the name came from one of Mike's verses. They had this group called the Nobility mm-hmm. and Nobility was kind of like Day De, De La Soul, Souls of Mischief, very bohemian. And they had this song called Metamorphosism. 
and they sampled the, the Jungle Brothers metamorphosism. The force of nature has gotten in them. But on that, he said, um, he said this line. He said, "Land of the rhymes and I'm a demigod." And in in, his, in the middle of his verse, so and this is before I knew them. This is before I had met them. And then so they adopted the name demigods. And because Mike was in high school at the time, they started silk screening somewhere in one of his classes. They were able like a shop class or I don't know what the fuck it was, but they would silk screen shirts and jackets. So all of a sudden they had these this like Mike was dope with art, too, and graffiti. So they had this logo where it said demigods and it had a, a little alien spaceship above it. And I saw that from one of my homies who had who's part of it, my man Voodoo. And um, I was just like, holy shit. Everything about it was so fresh. It felt like the same, the first time I saw Wu-Tang. You know what I yeah. mean? Like the, Because it was local dudes who were doing something dope. And these guys had a four track. They had a microphone. They had original beats that Mike was making on this uh, Commodore 64 uh, something tracker program, Pro Tracker or something like that. And, and the beats were incredible, man. They were using the illest samples. It was, it was literally like how the same interesting type of samples that souls of mischief used to use on 93 till really nice. interesting shit they had fucking wolves howling in the in the beats and all of these crazy things so automatically i was like holy shit i gotta be down with these guys and um two of my good friends jvr and voodoo they were trying to get me into demigods and mike was pretty much you know heading demigods at that point so i, I ended up rapping for mike and uh, he put me down, man. And then and then it's funny because right when I got into it, two of the main members, my man Voodoo and this other dude, Steve, broke off. So me and Mike started a whole new kind of group. Mm. And we had and, and I'm in high school. I'm in freshman year at this time. And uh, we made this demo with this song called Feet Don't Fail Me Now. And it was real. It was real jazzy joint and i we sampled organized confusion feet don't fail me now <laughs> gotta make it to the studio some way somehow and um and i was gassed because i was a freshman in high school and i'm playing all these girls my tape and i'm like yo check it out and, and all my homies are sweating it <laughs> so so that's originally how i got down with uh the demigods what what, what is the uh, i mean why why did you want to be a part of this collective i mean what is the for you, what was the what, what did you see as the advantages of kind of joining them? First of all, I didn't know any other groups. <laughs> I didn't know anybody else who was doing this. And but not only that, it didn't matter because I mean there were some other groups who were doing a little more street shit and a little more basic hip hop. But these guys were rapping about really different shit. You know what I mean? They they would they would talk about alien shit and they would talk about they they were reading Zachariah Sitchin books and they were they were, you know, they were just rapping about a lot of really unique shit mm -hmm. and, and doing that style that I loved of, cause like I said, I was really into organized confusion. I was super into high roll, all of these groups that had complex wordplay and, and really dope jazzy samples. And they, they were onto that shit. And then the fact that they had a dope name and a dope logo and they recorded, they, you know, they actually had shit and they mm -hmm. had original beats. It, it was like the illest shit ever. It was, it was my first massive gateway ever to hip-hop me getting down with them um was the same excitement level for that time as the same excitement that i felt when i first worked with premiere mm. when i first worked with you know all of these legend pete rock feral monch the the, the the excitement level was the same because 
I had nothing, no other frame of reference to doing something that solid in hip hop. I, I think of uh, what I was doing my, I guess it would be my senior year of high school versus what you did on your senior year of high school. And I feel like a complete failure. No, just, uh, but I feel like you. <laughs> nah, nah. No, no, it, well, if it's any consolation, I did not have a senior year of high school. But, <laughs> but let's, like, let's go to 97. You, you're featured on three tracks from the psycho, uh, psychosocial CD of, uh, you know, the debut album of Jedi Mind, Jedi Mind Tricks. How did that? Yep. But one, how did that come to be? How did you connect with uh, Jedi Mind Tricks? But also, I mean, what did that mean for you as, I mean, a seventeen-year-old kid who is just who's been, you know, working on his pen game for so long and working on his rhyme game for so long? Right at that time, I was obsessive, and uh, I was dating and living with this girl, um, Silk. Her real name is Silk, and her rap name is Eternia, and. Um, Eternia is is a, a, a pretty well-known MC in the underground. She's from Canada originally. And her and I were like teenagers living with each other. I went up to Canada to get her. And at that time, I was obsessed with the knowledge and the science. And I was reading Dr. Malachi York, Holy Tab, Scrolls. And, and, and I was just OD with it. So one day we went up to University of Connecticut, where not only did I have a show, but I was just up there all the time because they had a Studio B where you could play vinyl and just rap and shit. So I saw that we had some record from some group come in that got serviced to us, and it said Jedi Mind Tricks, and I was like, oh, that's a dope title. (laughs) And I'm looking at the titles of the songs, and I'm like, okay, all right, let's see what this is about. And I, I never expected when I put the the needle on the record for this guy to be rapping about the same type of shit that I was rapping about and all the other features on the album. And I'm like, what the fuck? Because at this point in time, no one was rapping about that Elohim, cosmic, crazy, deep, like Holy Tab style um, rap shit. Nobody was just so all of a sudden to hear this, it's like it's like that blind melon video with a little bit bumblebee girl who tap dances and then she finally finds her people at the end <laughs> I, I finally found somebody you know who who was on the same shit that we were on and, and my mind was blown i was like this is crazy so there was an email on the vinyl super regular recordings and i just emailed them and i said yo i'd love to talk to you guys and then Paz um, hit me back, and and we started getting on the phone, and we would get on the phone all the time. I remember I ran up my father's phone bill because <laughs> nice. me and Paz would just get on the phone. I'd just call him, and we'd rap, we'd spit verses for each other back and forth all the time. And Paz was like, "Yo, you got to come down here, man. We're we're recording this album. I want you on like, I want you on a couple joints." So me and Eternia took the Amtrak to Philly, and. When we got there, Vinny picked us up at a station and um, we went to Stoops' house and we were recording in Stoops' house. It was hot as fuck. (laughs) Stoop had this little room. Stoop's sister was really angry that we were there for some reason. And Stoop's sister was like storming around in the background and made it mad uncomfortable. I felt awkward and horrible. Um, (laughs) she's like, she was like tight that we were there for some reason. And you know, it's, it's me. It's me, Eternia, Paz, and Stoop in this room. And I'll never forget, like, um, the joint. I think it's Omnicron with the guitar. Stoop played that shit. That's not a sample. Stoop played that with the guitar. He was sitting right there with the guitar. 
fucking played that shit. And I was like, oh my God, this is nuts. It sounded like a sample to me. So I uh, I did my verses and actually Eternia did a verse too, but I, I don't think Stoop liked it. Mm. So they ended up not using it. Um, it might, I think her flow was a little too fast at that point or something crazy. But um, we we recorded those records and I was like, all right, that'll be dope. That'll be cool. You know, just, I, I didn't know what to expect because like I said, I had no frame of reference. So we, we did that. I went back home. They put out the vinyl and it, it got a lot of buzz, man. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people were talking about it. A lot of people were open off, off of what we did. And, um, it, it, it changed. That was a huge change for me initially, you know? And, um, then all of a sudden, you know, more things opened up off that Eddie Ill and DL. We got little reviews and shit, um, on, uh, we got little reviews on, on, from, I remember who was it? Brian Coleman All right, nice. wrote a review. Yeah. He, that was the first review I'd ever gotten. And he, he, he reviewed it and he gave it a really good review and I was just totally gassed, man. I couldn't believe it. So that was it. That's how we started the psychosocial. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Did you kind of, I mean, did you kind of know, was it, was that, I mean, a weird, was that, was that kind of a game plan move for you in terms of, uh, at the time, did you know, like, if I do this, there's a chance this, this is going to happen or was it just more being like, shit, I'm going to fucking, you know, collab with Jedi Mind Tricks. I just want to just go down and do it. Nope. At that point in time, I had zero strategy. (laughs) I had zero (laughs) I wasn't cognitive of, of making anything happen. I was just doing whatever felt right at the time and, and whatever kind of like went along with what I was doing. Cause there was other groups in Connecticut who were just like really basic, like, you know, sounded like super basic street shit. And, um, so the fact that I heard Paz in them and, and they were on that level, that's where I had to go no matter what. Mm. So it meant more to me to travel six, whatever hours, to go down to Philly to rock than it was for me to just take a drive over to Hartford and New Britain and link with the people who I knew out here. I had zero expectations. I had zero knowledge of what would happen. I I wasn't even thinking about it at all. I was just like, okay, this is a dope situation. I got to go do this right now. It wasn't like I was thinking about, yo, I'll pop off from this. At that point in time, we still had the stupid ideas of 
yo, maybe maybe Def Jam will hear us and think we're ill and put us out and we'll be like organized confusion. <laughs> I'm saying like a whole bunch of things that don't make any sense at all. So, what did uh, so how, how did the connect? I mean, prior to two thousand um, in two thousand six, you had a, uh, a a kind of a, a brief a brief uh, a brief time with Atlantic Records, right? Or prior to two thousand six, yeah, yeah. how did that connection happen? And then what was the what was the conversation like? And then what did you what did you want to get out of the signing with Atlanta Records, and what kind of when did you realize you weren't going to get what you needed out of this this deal? So here's what happened um, when when Self and I did um, Gods Must Be Crazy, the Demigods EP. Jimmy Iovine, one of his assistants, Jason, Jason got the the album to Jimmy. And played it for him. And he in in the intro to that starts with us redoing Dr. Dre's chronic intro. But we did it, you know, we did like a parody of it. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was hilarious. And at this point, Eminem had already popped off. So Eminem was well popping, you know. So he heard me himself, and he Jason had us flown out to he wanted to meet us. Jimmy Iovine wanted to meet us. So he had us flown out to LA. And we were really excited, man. We we couldn't believe it. We, this was fucking mind blowing to us that we were just two underground dudes, very early in our career, and Interscope Records wanted to fly us out to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. We couldn't believe that. So we fly out to Los Angeles. We get a rental. The, they rented us a vehicle. We rented a big ass SUV. Um, at the time, Self and I, neither of us had cell phones, so. They gave us a company cell phone so we could keep in contact with them while we were out there. Put us in the standard on Sunset Boulevard. They told us to charge whatever we wanted to the rooms. We were getting haircuts and shit. We were getting all types of crazy food at any point we wanted. We were just running <laughs> that up like assholes. So anyway, uh, so and then when we went to Interscope, we were excited too because they have this huge they at the time they had this huge room where they had free CDs and vinyls and all that shit. So we got like a massive amount. We got like a huge box. We were getting like Led Zeppelin box sets. Damn. And then we would go we would like we had we got so many CDs and then we went and sold most of the shit at you like at record stores. <laughs> you know what I mean? Later. So anyway, so we went over there, we went to Interscope, we met a couple people, um, but Jimmy was, just happened to be at the Eminem Cleaning Out My Closet video shoot. So we didn't get a chance to meet him. But one of our friends, Miles from BMI, from publishing, told Mike Karen from Atlantic Records that we were out there and that Jimmy was interested in, in us. So Mike was like, yo, they can we get a meeting with them? So we met up with Mike Karen. Miles brought us over there. We, we fucking, we, we ran up in there and, uh, Mike, it was me himself, but Mike, Oh, I'm sorry. So we met with Mike. Then we bounced back to the hotel. Now keep in mind, I had a, a cell phone, but it wasn't mine. You know what I'm saying? I was borrowing it from Interscope. So I didn't know what the fucking number was or anything like that. So I get back to my hotel room and there was a message from my mother with from with the hotel and she's like call me right away and i'm like oh shit was there a fucking emergency at home so i'm freaking out i right. call my mom my mom is like someone and keep in mind this is like an hour and a half two hours after we left the atlantic office okay um my mom was like someone from atlantic records just called here 
and she's like, is this a prank? Is it a prank call or something? I said, no, I think it's real. I think it's legit. So I, I took down the number and I called back Mike and Mike was like, yo, look, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, we, at this point, we want to sign you, um, as a solo artist, we'll, we'll guarantee that self will get production and guest appearances on your album, but we want you to meet with Craig common in New York. Hmm. And so long story short, flew back to New York. Um, and we met with Craig. Craig was like, this is great. Let's do it. We want to sign you. And luckily I had just gotten back in contact. Oh no, I'm sorry. I knew this dude from back in the day named Theo Settlemeyer. And I knew him from my alienation days in the mid nineties. Okay. And Theo was in law school at that time. And I remembered that. And I remembered he was doing law for alienation. So I hit up my man, Al T McLaren, who um, he used to be an A&R for Warlock. He was down where he produced for Alienation. And I told Al T, yo, I need to get a hold of Theo. And he said, okay, well, here's Theo's number. Give him a call. I call Theo and I'm like, yo, listen, are you, are you doing law now full time? And he's like, yeah, man. And I said, okay, well, here's my situation. And I tell him, and he said, you know what I'm doing right now, right? And I said, nah. He goes, I'm Eminem's lawyer. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, yo, app, I got you. Let's do this, man. He's like, you're my homie from way back. He's like, let's go. So Theo helped me orchestrate the whole deal. Get the whole, he, he actually, Theo put in a lot of, a lot of protection in that contract for me. That wouldn't have been normal. So Theo really watched, Theo saved me, man, because um, if it wasn't for Theo's protection in that shit, I, I might not have been able to, I might not even be talking to you right now because Atlantic ultimately allowed me to continue to put out independent underground shit while I was signed to them. And then when we decided we wanted to part ways, they let me out of my contract and they let me walk with my masters. Oh, that, well, that's amazing. And, shit. Wow. Yeah. yeah and, and keep in mind this too. When I put out Eastern philosophy, my first full length album, I was still signed with Atlantic. They allowed me to do that. So they allowed me to do all this shit. And pretty much it was because of, of, of what feel, had done Theo and, and Mike Karen was pretty facilitating about that shit too. Wow. Were you also, I mean, were you, were you still able to, I don't know if this is probably a shitty question, but are you still, were you still able to use like uh, Atlantic records facilities to like create the album or did you still have to do that on your own? I hated doing it with Atlantic. That's a, no, that's a good question because w I would fly out to LA and we would block out Paramount studios. We would get like room a or room B. I forget which one it was, but we would block it out. And I brought my man eighth wonder with me. Who's an amazing producer. And I brought my man vertigo with me. Who's a dope producer as well, but he plays keys like incredible. He's like fucking a young Bob James, a young hip hop, Bob James. So we went out there. And I just hated the pressure. I hated somebody breathing down my neck. I hated somebody. It felt like I had a backseat driver because Mike was always trying to tell me shit to do and do this and do that. And because that happened, um, I, we were just so far off. Like we, we, I, I don't work like that. That's not my process. So it just, it ended up being really bad. Like instead of me being at home and Mike being like, Hey, I got some ideas. It, it was just like he was like micromanaging what we were doing and it just started to turn out really fucking corny mm. and uh, everything just felt really whack and and some of the imagery and some of the things they wanted me to do were, were really horrible man like they wanted me i was in my early 20s at the time but early to mid 20s but they wanted me to like be rapping about 
beer pong in college and, and, and teenage girls, they were like, yeah, you know, like make it like you're like a like a dangerous rock star. And, and you know, you might steal somebody's teenage daughter. And I, and I remember being like, no, I'm not doing that. Absolutely not, bro. Hell no. I'm not going to get arrested. What if I go on tour? That's the first thing somebody's going to fucking say. I'm not doing that shit. So I, I, I gave them a lot of pushback. And um, but we, we made a lot of crazy records, man. Like Asher Roth's I Love College. That's my beat. I produced that with Mike. That's mine. The reason why the 10 percent this beat drum break is over that is because of me. I produced that with Mike. That was going to be my record. And then years later, I'm driving through L.A. and I turn on the radio and I hear this shit. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? So. But my good friends is all I need. Pass out of three. Wake up at ten. Go out to eat. Yeah, man, that's that's what they were trying to do. And and we also had some pushback, too, because as, as far to follow up with your question from earlier, what I wanted to do when I got signed to Atlantic, my expectations and my thoughts were I was going to blow up doing real classic hip hop. My whole album was going to be DJ Premier, Pete Rock, guest appearances from Ghostface and Nas. This is what I was thinking in my head while I'm flying out to Los Angeles. You know what I'm saying? So I was I was gassed, man. I was really trying to make it happen. And they had a whole different vision. And keep in mind, my A&R at the time, he's doing Trey songs, T.I., Trick Daddy, Trina, and Twista, real heavy. So that's the mind frame that he was in. You know, he was making hits like that at that time period. And I'm over here trying to fucking remake Illmatic, you know, and he's like, nah, you're an idiot. So, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so I think it was me being naive and it was also me having totally different expectations. During that time, too, like I went out to Pete Rock's house, me and Pete worked on some shit, but my a and was just like, nah, this is, this is not it. So we, you know, I was linking up, linked up with Alchemist. I got some Alchemist beats at that time, but none of that shit came to fruition because they just wanted me to do something totally different. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And, and, and in 2006, you dropped uh, your debut album, Eastern F uh, Philosophy, um, you know, on your own. And uh, I think in, in, in the beginning, the intro of the track, the, the opening track, uh, Eastern Philosophy, it's you, it's you stating kind of East Coast hip hop and kind of bringing East Coast hip hop back. Uh, can you take yep. us into for you what was happening in 2006 or 2005 when you're creating the album that made you feel you needed to make this call back for East Coast to kind of come back to... To the to to I gotta go back to the hip hop drawing board or you know. 
I've always been like a die. I'm, I'm unapologetically an old head. Like I've always been obsessed with nineties hip hop. I've never been able to let it go. Other people are like, yo man, you're stuck in the past. Fuck all those loops. Let's just rap over this keyboard shit. And I've always been like, nah, nah, nah. So after the whole Atlantic experience left a really bad taste in my mouth, I just wanted to double down and go real hard on the hardcore boom bap shit. Luckily, the the underground independent scene was thriving in it. You know what I'm saying? Luckily, like, you know, a, a little bit before that, you know, Simon Says and all these records and Most Def, all of those joints were like, you know, the, the blueprint of, of me feeling like I'm on the right path with doing real hardcore hip hop. So I just wanted to double down, man. I wanted to say that at that time to Eastern philosophy, I only listened specifically to like only built for Cuban links, Illmatic, like a handful of albums in that vein. And that's all I would listen to. So I, I, I knew I wasn't going to remake those cause I could never make something of that stature, <laughs> but <clears throat> I wanted to be influenced. And if I got any influence at that point in time, I wanted it to be that level in the, in that feel. So that's what I wanted to create, man. I wanted, I made things intentionally grimy. I made things, you know, like even from the intro, show to that where I, I cut up my philosophy that's me paying homage to all the, the the legendary artists and that's what it's always been about for me too man is paying respects showing love and, and teaching the newer generations you know wh where i get it from and, and and you do that also through well you know throughout the album as well and, and i think what really stands out is also i think more in kind of back to like in, in hindsight I, you know as you're listening to it you don't appreciate it as much because we're still deep in that game of like the appreciation of the DJ and the scratches. But as we go further and further away from appreciation of the DJ and scratching, you, you, you kind of, well, for me, I gravitate more to like when an artist is, is, is putting scratches into his or her music. Um, right. And you do that throughout, I think, you know, with evil D you do that and other, and other DJs, you do that throughout this uh, album for you. What was the importance of having, the scratches, but also making sure that the DJ was heavily involved with this album. I mean, that's, that's the biggest point for me. You know, I mean, it all started with the DJs. That's, that's what this all started with. The DJs were always number one. And, um, to, to, as far as like using, having DJs do the cuts and shit, that was critical to me because, you know, DJ premier was such a big influence on me and I wanted records. I wanted to make records that sounded like, something premiere would do you know i mean you can like we can't duplicate what premiere does right but like you know like I, and and the other thing too that i i realized from jump is i always wanted to use the best sentences from classic albums that maybe nobody had gotten to yet you know what i mean like that's why at the time when i cut it up nobody had cut it up yet was like onyx one gun two all about crime you know that whole sentence and um a thousand grams of uncut to the gut like some of the most iconic lines i wanted to cut those lines up you know and and, and there were some things that were brought to me with already the idea in place like um my man quincy tones from the uk he produced nine to five and it already had that jay-z sample in there mm, nice. so that kind of laid laid the foundation for that idea for that but you know a lot of those records a lot of those things um were just all critical for me to pay homage to that time period you know 
I want to ask you, ask you about nine to five because you know on it you spit uh, when it comes to getting money, study all the aspects, and then on off another of your another album, uh, Honky Kong. Uh, the check to check he spit I uh, wish somebody would taught me how to deal but I ain't talking about trees or keys or blow I never knew how to be responsible with my dough I radiate being broke you you almost see me glow um, can you take me into what happens with artists when they get their first payday I mean we, you know we, we you hear about it in the news right like oh how can so-and-so got like five trillion dollars but now they're broke how is that possible you know what what is it that artists are not? I guess prepared for when they when they do receive that that cash advance and and then what is kind of the most surprising thing for them or for you about learning the business side of hip hop? Financial responsibility and everything to do with it is something that is usually um, a luxury of people who are educated and people who um, have money to begin with. And if you grew up poor and you grew up in an economically destitute situation, the odds are that you are going to continue that cycle. My parents, my family, no one knew how to properly manage money. My parents, like I said, they were teenagers when they had me. There was a lot of drug stuff going on in the 80s. I grew up on welfare and government cheese, literally the government cheese in the, in the cardboard boxes. And we, we were poor. I mean, the other thing too, is that I remember as a kid thinking like, damn, we were really poor, but how the fuck did I have so many GI Joes and all that shit? Well, one of the problems of people when they're poor is they do instant gratification shit. So my parents, instead of stacking their money or teaching me to save up for something, they would just get a paycheck or something and start spending. They would cop shit. You know what I mean? And that that's that's a bad cycle. So um when I grew up, um I had I had good parents, man. They they had a lot of flaws and they had a lot of issues, but they were good in their hearts. And but they never taught me financial responsibility. I never knew how to balance a checkbook. I never knew how to save money. I never knew how to spend my money properly or be wise about my shit. It was just always spend it like you get money you make money spend that shit and i think that all artists usually most artists come from that same dynamic so when we get to a point where you know when when i'm a teen when i'm a when i'm in my early 20s and i get a check from atlantic records initially for thirty thousand dollars and i deposit it in a checking account and that's the most money i've ever seen i don't think that's ever going to run out Mm -hmm. and i think more is on the way so I'm just like, oh, shit, dinner on me. Everybody get whatever the fuck you want. Bars open. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and it was a lot of bullshit spending and it was a lot of bullshit stuff. And before I knew it, I was out of dough. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't even think I got this big ass apartment that was way too big um, right away. I just got a fucking crazy ass apartment. It was way too big. I didn't even spend a lot of time there because I'd go stay with friends and go chill because I was just, it, it, it was just like a big fucking empty, sad place. It was nice. It was really nice, but it was just, I, I wasn't happy there. There wasn't anybody around me. So I was spending all this money on rent and all this bullshit and uh, I blew through my money and, and, and I never knew about investing. I never knew about saving. I never knew about anything. I was just all about spending so that's that's what happens and, and that's what the whole gist of check to check is mm. and 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 it's, it's it, i think it's important to mention uh, that 2011 is when honky kong uh dropped because that's the check to check is off of it and and something that you also point out in check to check is um 
how how I mean, I'd say the lyrics and uh, rap money is bullshit. Nothing is nothing like it used to be. I used to be used to G's, blew them through foolishly. Um, so there, it's, I think what you're pointing out is that there's a there was a time when, you know, the big label will give you that thirty thousand dollar check right off the bat. But something obviously changed with that. With and and can you can you talk about did did something change with that? I mean, our our label is dropping, you know, thirty thousand dollars at a time or you know or are are they able to be a little cheaper with their money now um i I, not only majors back then but like indies like raucous was giving out tons of money to people like i had friends who were making a lot of money with raucous and then even my situation when i did ain't nothing nice and i did um motherfucking immortal every time i drop one of those i get five thousand dollars just they cut me a check i'd give them two songs I'd hand them two songs, right. radio edit, dirty version, instrumental, be like, boom, here. And then another one, radio, instrumental, dirty version. And they cut me a check for five grand right off the bat. Just boom. Okay, thanks. So it was like I was dropping all these 12 inches and I'm just making thousands of dollars as a young dude in my early 20s. And I'm like, oh, shit. So I just, you know, it, it just became a joke to me. And, and, and I always thought this is it i'm just every year i'm gonna make more money it's it's never gonna go anywhere else right. so so that's that's what it felt like and you know fans were buying shit you know because because there was the whole indie boom so even we were like pressing our cds we would fucking go to staples and burn the cds and, and print out shitty fucking covers and shit <laughs> and cut those out and uh we, we it was just we were just making paper and and you know it wasn't millions but for us for me it was incredible at the time I was just like, damn, bro. I, I went from being mega broke to just starting to make good money. And I'm like, holy shit. You know, the first year that I signed to Atlantic was the first time I had ever made six figures. And I was like, I'm going to make way more next year. Like, this is crazy. You know, so um, it, 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 it was really nuts to me, all of that money. And then just... The, the next step was just blowing through it like <laughs> with reckless abandon yeah and i'm sure what doesn't also help is that the fact that you're you're doing you're getting paid so much money for doing something that i imagine is like writing is kind of effortless yeah. for you effortless for yeah, you we would so. we would have done it for the props for a lot longer right <laughs> right like, <laughs> um i want to ask you uh, you know in um uh, the, the record off of uh, Honky Kong, uh, Stop What You're Doing, is a featuring self-titled, but also produced by DJ Premier. And you talked about DJ Premier a little bit earlier, but when was the first time you two connected? And um, what has what, what, what was like the one thing that kind of maybe surprised you most about him as a producer in the studio? Well, the first time we connected, I, I had been talking to, because I had been friends with Eclipse, DJ Eclipse for a long time. And Eclipse is probably one of the most important people in my career as well, because he's connected so many dots for me. And so I'm very indebted to Eclipse. I love him. And um, so I told Eclipse I wanted to work with Premier. And Eclipse was like, all right, I'm going to put the buzz in his ear and all that. So Premier was, was DJing one night in Providence, Rhode Island, which is really close to me. So we, we rolled out there and, and, you know, I didn't really think, and by the way, years before this premiere played 
rise the wickedest flow on hot 97 and i produced that so i was losing my mind and i was like oh my god you you know i'm like oh my god do you think there's a chance premiere knows who i am nah nah this probably doesn't know he's probably just playing the record nah he doesn't know who i am so i i'm i'm in rhode island and it was so dope too because i brought a lot of people with me a lot of friends and shit and we go up to this place it used to be called jerky's it was this upstairs place so you walk up this long flight of stairs and there's a spot and we walk into jerky's and as i walk in premieres djing and he's like he he sees me and he, he gives he shots there's like a peace sign to me and i'm like no nah, i don't think premier knows who i am so you know I, it's one of those things where you look behind you like is he waving to somebody else and and then he gets on the mic and he goes yo shout out to apathy in the building and I'm like, what? I, you know what I'm saying? I, w- I couldn't have even played it cool if I wanted to because I just started cheesing automatically. And I'm like, yo. And everybody was like, oh, shit. You know what I'm saying? So it, it was a really crazy moment. Then when he got off stage, him and I were talking on the side of the stage real quick. And I said, yo, man, I said, uh, you know, you, you're the biggest influence in my life. You're my favorite producer of my entire life. Um, I, I, I'd love to work with you. And he's like, yo, let's do it. And as soon as he said those words, I just felt like I was going to fucking pass out, man. I was like, wow. So he's like, yo, he's like, here's my number and here's Fat Gary's number, my manager. Let's make it work. That was his manager at the time. Who Fat Gary ended up becoming my manager later too. But um, at the time, so so we started to link up and Preem was like, all right, so what do you want to do? And and I was like, yo, can you send me a, a, like a, a, some beats? He's like, nah, I don't work like that. And uh, he's like, I make, I, I tailor make every beat for each person, wow. which is true. So no matter if it's Nas or Biggie or LL, he made them all for that one. He doesn't give out beat tapes. There's no beat tapes. Or Preem doesn't make like a batch of beats. Um, so he's like, what's your idea? And do you remember how I told you, I always want to use like the most iconic lines in hip hop that um, no one's used yet. And I was thinking like, damn, Humpty Hump is kind of like a pop hip hop song. But how ill would it be if DJ Premier on some hardcore shit cut up? All right, stop what you're doing because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you used to. And then Preem is like, oh, that's dope. Okay, okay. And we were trying to find the acapella for a long time. Like Preem even reached out to Shock G and um, I don't think he had the acapella, but he hit Shock up and was like, yo, you got this and, and i don't think we were able to find it for, for whatever reason but preem was like nah it's still gonna sound good with the drums under it <clears throat> and so he's like what he's like what do you want to do what's, what's the vibe and i'm like yo I, honestly i was like i want something that sounds like it would be on hard to earn and preem was like okay he's like all right let me see what i can do so he he made that and here's here's a fun fact too he used the, the drums from big beat and that's the first time in his career that he's ever used those drums which is incredible is on my record and i'm so gassed about that and so he um he did that record he sent me the beat and i was like holy shit and i'll be real i i loved at first i was mind blown and i said this is fucking incredible all right and but when i played it and i told self i said yo this is it this is the one um, i want you on this with me we're just gonna be ill for us to tour with and let's do this and i sent it to self self's like i don't really like it and i'm like what (laughs) so i'm like damn are you fucking serious and he was like yeah i'm not really feeling it i said well tough shit you can't always get what you want right to it anyway (laughs) and so so self wrote to it 
self-bodied it. It's one of my self favorite one of my favorite self-titled raps of all time. That's dope. He really he really killed it. And um and it worked out. But it's it's crazy too because then when we recorded it, everything was done. I have always been a nutcase about mixing and mastering and, and how we have our shit done. And I and, and that's for me and self being like that. We're like quality control wackos. <laughs> so Preem was like I'm going to mix this. And I'm like, Preem, please, please let me mix this. Because at that point in time, I don't think Preem was using Eddie Sancho. He was not. He was not using Eddie Sancho at that point in time. And he was not going to use Eddie for this one. He was going to mix it himself. And I wanted it to sound like old school Preem. And I know Preem was, you know, Preem was going with, you know, Preem doesn't want to stay stagnant. So he's trying to like use updated style of shit. And I was like, I, I can't. So I told Preem, I said, bro, can, will you please let me mix it? And Preem's like, I don't let nobody mix my shit except for like two people. Mm. And I said, listen, I'm going to send you two songs off of my album, that off Honky Kong when I was working on it. I want you to listen to the mix because I learned to mix from listening to Eddie. I said, so that's that was my my barometer of how I learned to mix right there. I said, so I want I want to send you these two records if if you like the way they sound, will you consider it? He's like, yeah, email him, I guess. And so I sent him to him. 20 minutes after I emailed him to him, he goes, check your email. And he sent me the session for Stop What You're Doing. Oh, and and then Preem has said in interviews, which is dope too, Preem is like, they was talking about something and he goes, he goes, yeah, I don't let nobody mix my shit. He goes, matter of fact, the only the only person outside of that I ever let my mix my shit was Apathy. Apathy mixed my shit. And Preem loved it. He loved the mix I did. So I was I was really geeked off that. So um, you you mentioned uh, uh, you mentioned self title and uh, and obviously and obviously he's been an important part of your 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 creative process and your career uh, and you've collaborated with him obviously for quite some time. Uh, what what has impressed you most about him as an artist, but also even watching him grow as, as an artist. Self and I's relationship is, is not normal. And what I mean by that is me and self are best, best friends. Like we we're like, we're brothers. We are literally brothers. Like we talk every since back then we've talked every single day. We, um, we, we have, we never, maybe we've had like a slight fight, like a slight argument, but like, got over it in minutes like him and i he was the best man at my wedding he's my best friend he's the godfather to both my kids he's my business partner um me and self are, are brothers brothers like we talk every single day on the phone we, we 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 do all of this business and self has totally so you remember how i was talking about how i'm totally fucking irresponsible with money <laughs> self is a money fucking wizard that motherfucker is the most hustling ass grinding wizard you know how sometimes you'll, you'll meet those dudes who are hustlers and they're just super ill with their money and they take their money and invest it and flip it yeah self's that guy and self's the guy who who knows how to do so self funds all of our shit self um um, you know, keeps all of our accounting in order. Self self handles all of our business, man. He's the most thorough fucking dude in the world. Um, you know, he's totally made it. So, uh, you know, I've had a, a career that sustained this long because if I was with somebody else, if I was just left to my own devices, 
it would have been a disaster years and years ago and, and my life would be totally fucked up. And the fact that self is totally, you know, been the captain of the ship with our whole label and our whole business. Like when, when, when you see dirty version records and you see every single one of our releases, there's no staff, there's no assistant, there's no helper. That's just me and self. That's it. And so, so self is self has been, you know, more integral than anybody ever in my life as far as, you know, my career and my music and self, I've seen self, you know, over the years, obviously I've seen his, um, his change and getting so much iller and perfecting his voice and, 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 and doing so many different things and all the production he's done. And he's so fucking meticulous. And, you know, he's, he's a genius with sound and, and the way sound is, but, um, that's 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 the whole thing man i don't think people realize how how meticulous and genius self-titled is they hear his raps and they hear him you know talk a lot of shit and all that but self is a brilliant fucking dude Hmm. uh in 2015 uh the record uh the pendulum uh swings uh you know was dropped and it was about you know it's a track about life you know birth of your daughter a passing of a father uh it's a quote-unquote what they call you know quote-unquote mature record right uh, yep. Because it's about life-changing moments, and obviously, as we all get older, we have to. We, our art, the art changes as well. Um, what was what, what? What was the significance of this record to you? But also, is this at this? Was this the same time you were kind of thinking about uh, doing a, another career on top of of hip hop? No, I was not thinking about doing another career in hip hop. This was a time period. This was the heaviest time in my life. Absolutely. Like this was a time period where um, my father passed away from cancer and my father was the tightest with me. Like my father was my everything. He was my, my, my fucking, my biggest influence. He was, he was, he was the total rock in my life. You know what I mean? Like he, he was my fucking moral compass. He, he was just the greatest guy I've ever known in my entire life. And, um, at that point he he just died of cancer and right as my father died of cancer two days later i was in the hospital in critical condition with pancreatitis and um i almost died i was i was in critical condition for over two weeks and i was super fucked up and then um you know then years after that i got married um i had my daughter so all of these things were all of these life changing things were happening. And, and my wife, I've known my wife since we were teenagers, literally. Um, and so her and I had gotten back together in 2010. And right when her and I got back together, all of that shit hit the fan all at, at once. And she was right there to help me. I was fucked up. She brought me to the hospital. She stayed with me in the hospital, all of that. And um, I was feeling all of those heavy emotions and I'd never had anything like that in my life. So that song just, you know, it came natural. It was, it was like right after, right, right after the birth of my daughter, I started writing that shit and it just, it fucked me up because those, those were the thoughts I was having at the time. Like when I said, you know, um, it, I was saying like, you know, I'm going to shop for cribs and baby clothes and my dad's not going to be able to see that. You know what I mean? Like those thoughts were weighing so heavy on me that I had to make a record about that 
because I, I just it was it was the it was the deepest craziest thoughts I was having in my life. You produced the record and as well. And what's the significance for uh, uh, Slick Rick's "Hey Young World" uh, being you know kind of scratched within the beat? That was that was me paying respect to O O C because O is a huge Slick Rick fan, and O C used that same sample. So so that was like me saying, "Yo, look." I took this for a specific reason and I'm paying homage to OC that I'm using the same sample. You know what I mean? So that was me paying respects and, and, and like a, you know, tip of the hat to O. I want to ask you about OC, you know, you, you, you guys obviously collaborated on a record together in 2017. Uh, and I, you know, I had him on, on the podcast and he talked about meeting you for the first time. What do you remember about the first meeting of OC? And, and <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> go ahead. he said it, he said it. He, he he said it pretty good, man. Like that's exactly what it was. I was going to the organized confusion show. I knew O was gonna be there. Blackistan had already done a record with him. He 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 already knew Vinny. So I knew he knew a lot of my crew, but I didn't really know if he would know who I was. And and you know, I I don't expect anybody to know who I am. I, I just always assume that, you know, it's somebody might not know who I am. So I, I, you know, I loaded up my pockets. I had like motherfucking extinction agenda, multiple <laughs> things. I had, I had OC word life cassette tape. I had all these things. And, you know, I came up to, oh, and I introduced myself and uh, he's like, yo, I know who you are, bro. And I was like, oh shit. Okay. Well, yeah, that's crazy. So, and then I, I had him sign and he was bugged out that I had the word life cassette. He was like, holy shit. He was just tripping out about that. And, um, so we met and we had talked about it. And I, I like, like he said, I told him, I said, yo, uh, I want to produce a joint for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, we'll see, we'll see what happens. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's just build. Cause you know, always like that. Always yeah. is very, he's very just, uh, he, he's very vibe oriented. You know what I'm saying? Like it's gotta, it's gotta be right to him, which I respect tremendously. So I go home, I hit up all and I was like, yo, I, I want to produce a whole project for you. And O said to me, I, I listen, this is how accurate my memory is about this. I remember the exact spot where I was. <laughs> nice. If anyone knows Connecticut, I was in Groton. My, my vehicle was driving over the Gold Star Bridge. I was in the passenger seat. We were driving over the Gold Star Bridge at the beginning of the Gold Star Bridge. And I said, yo, I want to produce a project for you. And O was like, yo, why don't we just do a, a whole joint together? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yo, absolutely. O, o proposed it. And I was like, yo, let, let's go, man. So I was I was totally, absolutely gassed, man. This this was like a culmination of all of my teenage years and all of that hard work I did. I was more excited to do an album with OC than I was excited when I got signed to a major label. So wow. Um, I was so excited because I'm like, bro, this is something somebody who I spent so much time studying. And, and me, I, I always used an O as an example to younger people because I'm like, yo, OC's record kind of changed everything because artists who were putting out major label material at that time you know even if it was you know wild pitch and all, all of those labels and shit like that th there was you were either on some street hardcore shit or you were on some lyrical underground shit and and 
underground had a different meaning back then by the way underground wasn't like indie indie underground mm -hmm. like it is you know underground underground pre-96 meant uh like gangstar and right. lords of the underground and das effects and red man that was underground so at that time when oh so like i said you were either lyrical underground you were hardcore oh wove those two together oh o's dropping times up single-handedly melted together hard street shit and lyrical underground shit all in one fail swoop and there's no one who came before him or after him who did it like that hmm. so i studied him and to, to great length so so him agreeing to do an album with me was just beyond I, anything i could have ever expected is that a situation where you're you put i guess extra pressure on yourself to make sure you deliver you know the best you can or is it just kind of you try to set that aside and you know just do what you know you, you already have this you already have this discography anyway so you don't you know you don't have to quote unquote prove yourself again right so uh how did you approach the making of the album with him I, here, here's the thing. I'm always learning, and I'm all, I always learn from my mistakes. And the first mistake that I, I made with approaching the O's project is I was selecting beats that sounded like classic OC shit, like Jewel's type wave. Mm -hmm. and, and the only evidence left of that on Perestroika, the only one I left alone was Globetrotters, which is some like jazzy fly sounding. OC Jewel's era sounding shit. Mm -hmm. That's the only one I left. The rest of the album, and O will tell you this, we record every single one of those joints, we recorded the different beats. And I remixed the entire album like three times because I realized that this had to have its own identity. Mm -hmm. And for me to chase O and his sound uh, wasn't the right thing to do. And we needed to create something new. And as far as lyrically, how I approached it, I, I learned very early on that it's corny when you try to cater and change your style to the person you're working with and that the best thing ever is um, being you on a record. You know what I'm saying? Like if if, if Lil Fame is on a, a record with somebody guest appearance, it, Lil Fame's not going to try to sound like whoever he's on the record with. He's just going to be Lil Fame and that's, that's the best thing that you could possibly do because that's what everybody wants. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't try to be a chameleon. So my biggest thing with O is I was like, O is going to be O, and, and I just got to do the best apathy that I can do Stop. ever. And, and that's what people are going to appreciate. So, you know, we record, O came up here. He stayed up here for a minute, and we recorded. And um, the records that he took home to listen to, I, like I said, I remix them three times and, and I tell him, I'd be like, yo, I'm going to change the beat. And he'd be like, all right, it's dope. But yo, go, I trust you. And I'm like, all right. And then I'd send it to him and he'd be like, ah, that's dope. That's and then I'd be like, all right. And then two days later, I'd be like, yo, oh, I'm going to change that again. He's like, damn, you're crazy, man, but go <laughs> ahead. And then, um, you know, so he kept, he, he, he would keep saying that. He'd be like, yo, He'd be like, yo, you, pulled, you you did it, man. You pulled it off. It's, but it, it bugged him out that I, I did that much shit, that I had to remix it that many times. I was just a perfectionist. I, it was driving me nuts. So, I want to step back a couple of years. Uh, you, in 2014, when you dropped uh, Connecticut Casual, 
Um, yep. You know, you, you 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 see the title of the album. Connecticut is obviously the title, and 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 what the album is about in terms of talking about where you're from. Um, did you feel you were taking kind of a, a a chance on that having that album in terms of you know really talking about Connecticut and feeling maybe 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 you know us. New York assholes will be like, fuck you, you know, that type of shit. You know, like, are you, do you think you were taking a chance by making that type of album or did you just not really care that you were taking this chance or what did you want the album to say about Connecticut that wasn't being told? Two things. <clears throat> I didn't give a fuck. Like, I didn't care what, and I was, I was in that point where I'm just like, I'm going to make whatever I want because a lot of artists get in that frame of mind. They're like, I don't give a fuck. And that can either be a dangerous thing or a good thing. And I think it was a good thing for me. Um, but the biggest thing is, um, I had the, I, I, the whole idea came to me in one Amtrak train ride because I, 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 I went from New London, which is pretty much almost the furthest east. It's pretty far east in Connecticut. New London to New York. And when I took that Amtrak ride, I'm looking at all of Connecticut and I'm looking at the shoreline. I'm looking at the ocean and the boats. And then we're driving through the hood and we're seeing all this grimy shit. Then we're driving through nice neighborhoods. Then we're driving through, um, you know, um, fucking, um, you know, suburban regular neighborhoods, then rich ass spots, then back to grimy, then fucking boats again. And I'm like, you know, I, there are a lot of states that are complex and have a lot of different things, but I'm like, damn, Connecticut is a really fucking complex place. It's really strange. And, and because people have had the perception too in the past where they're like, Oh, you're from Connecticut. It's nice there, bro. That must be nice to be from there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I grew up in shit. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I don't know the areas that are, are that mega nice. I mean, I also know some of the, the woodsy areas that are up North, but a lot of those people too, are you know lower income um you know people who blue collar workers uh, or lower income or who who you know come from a certain background that's not that's not you know um fucking like you know really privileged either so so basically with connecticut i knew all this history of connecticut that there was creepy one percenters who felt the, the rules didn't apply to them and these things have happened historically like the martha moxley shit and some of the some of the kennedy family relations that were up here and all the crooked shit to all the hoods and all of the grimy areas that i lived in and then the woods and you know people who lived in the woods who were just regular ass uh blue collar motherfuckers to you know white trash on welfare in places like Jewett city and hoods like waterbury and you know new haven and bridgeport there, there was so much complexity in connecticut that i wanted to get that across and and there was also there's also a heavy heavy um new england culture here so all of these things mixed up was pretty fascinating to me and i wanted to convey all of that and let people see what i see you know all my life uh, i have to ask you about uh your album i Hand, handshakes with snakes uh because of the opening line to uh amon Row, which features self-title in the late pumpkin head uh which i think is like one of the best lines i've ever heard you know i don't care if you're a thug or not you ever fought a juggernaut and i won't i won't i won't screw it up anymore uh well <laughs> i want to ask you about well first the, the, that opening line like when did that come to you and then how did you just you know i think it's just it's one of those things you read and then i feel like it was just written in one try you know uh, because that's just one yeah that's just one of the 
that's just one of the lines that comes out of the ether, man. That's that's just that comes out of the air. You know what I mean? Like it, I, I didn't even I didn't even put much thought into that one. It's just you know I, I I'm obsessed with comic books and X Men, so I always like to say fly shit and Juggernaut was um you know it, it's like you know that that's the whole thing. Like I don't care if you think you're a tough guy, man. You ever you ever fought something that's crazy? You know what I mean? Like like that that that's just where that came from. And and actually. That Pumpkinhead verse, that was an absolute blessing to find that because what that was, back in the early 2000s, uh, PH and Poison Pen were, were my brothers since I was very young, since I was a teenager, very good friends of mine. They came up to Connecticut to record with me and Chum. Chum's my DJ. Chum produced a lot on Eastern Philosophy, engineered. So Chum, one of my best friends. So we're, we're at Chum's house where we had the booth and we had the studio. And it was PH, Penn, and I, I'm, I'm, trying to, man, I'm trying to remember who the fuck else it was. But Penn, they came up, like I said, early 2000s, man. Uh, and we recorded a couple songs. One was Way of the Gun, which ended up becoming repurposed and it was turned into a 7L and Esoteric song. And Pumpkinhead recorded his verse to that. So Pumpkinhead was originally on Way of the Gun, which he we ended up, because we lost the vocals. That's what it was. We didn't know what happened to the vocals. They got misplaced. So I ended up just using that beat and we, we totally fucking redid it and I, I ended up re-kicking my lyrics to be on the 7L and esoteric one but um we lost the vocals years and years fucking later like it was like a fucking decade later over like 10 years later you know uh well first of all pumpkinhead passes away and I, we were heartbroken all of us were fucking devastated and as a matter of fact the the organized confusion show that i met oc at was the last time that i saw ph oh, wow. in person and so um ph passes away and, and you know like i said we all got rocked by that and then a couple of years later i'm working on um handshakes with snakes chum calls me and and calls me on the phone he's like yo guess what i found and i'm like what and he plays ph's verse acapella and i just my heart dropped in my stomach i'm like oh my god holy shit i totally had forgotten about it and i was like yo are you kidding me because the timing was crazy it was like it, it was just like right around that time and i'm like yo you got to be fucking kidding me so we built the whole track around that like I, I made the beat specifically for that and ph was friends with self too self wanted to be on the record too and um that's that's what that was man we made that song specifically to um you know to, to get that ph verse and and it was just such a strong ill verse that I, that, that was one of my favorite moments on that album easily so when he played you that verse again you knew exactly where it was from yep yep as soon as 
actually, I I misremembered, and I thought it was this other song called The Lion Pit, which Poison Pen was on. And we lost that whole session, actually. I didn't even have the beat or nothing. But um, I, I thought that, I said, oh, PH's verse from The Lion Pit. And Chum was like, nah, that was from Way of the Gun. And then it all came back to me of what, what had happened. That's amazing. Uh, you know, you, you've mentioned you, you know, you, you're a producer, you're, you're, you're an MC, you're, you know, you, you wear a lot of hats, right, so to say. But then you also, you, you also have another hat, which is a real estate hat. Uh, when did you know, when did you get involved with real estate? But why also did you get involved in real estate? It was about two and a half years ago. So the, Self and I would do these big tours and I'll do these albums. And even though I've gotten better financially, I'm still not where I need to totally be. And um, so we would do these big tours, do these albums, and then I'd make these huge piles of cash and then just slowly erode at that pile of cash, just just whittle away at it. And I'm like, fuck, man, I, I, I need to stop doing this. Like, I need to invest in something. So Self and I both agreed we're like, well, yo, because Self and I do everything. We're always going to do everything together, like business-wise. Every move we make, even if it goes past hip-hop, we fuck with each other. So um, I was like, L- L- we should get into real estate. That's the move. And um, Self was like, all right, well, I guess research it. And I said, all right, well, you know, I think to, to know the whole thing, we should we should really get into it. We should get our real estate license. Self's like, I'm not doing that. And I was like, All right, it's more my personality to do something like that. Self, self is exactly the type of person who was like, man, I'm not, I'm not going through school. I'm not doing all that shit. So I went through school. I went through class. I fucking would get up every fucking Saturday morning, dumb early, go to class for fucking six or seven hours, whatever the fuck it was. Damn. And busted my ass studying. I, I, I remember being in, uh, in, in our in our studio building we have this one conference room that you can rent out i would rent out the conference not rent out for money but you just block out the time right but i would i would sit there and study with my books i had a fucking i had a headphones in with white noise playing so i couldn't hear shit um and just zone the fuck out and worked really 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 fucking hard and even working really fucking hard i still failed the test twice the real estate exam because the real estate exam makes no fucking sense. It hasn't now that I've sold as many houses as I've sold and done as much real estate as I've done. Um, I know that this shit has nothing to do with fucking actual practical application of real estate. It's, it's just like, it's pretty much a cash grab for them to make some money off you to, to get you for your license. So, at any rate, and it probably weeds out bullshit people too. So I, uh, on my third try, I finally passed and I was just through the roof. And then my first year in real estate sucked. I had, I had one sale, shout out to my man, Rob, who I helped him and his, his girl sell, uh, buy their house and, um, buy their first house, which was dope. So it means a lot to me that I worked with them. And, uh, that was it. It was like, it, it, it was just a, it was a small amount in volume I did that year. My next year, I, I have done way fucking higher volume. Like my first, for example, and this is this is Connecticut numbers. So these are really good numbers, especially for, you know, a brand new agent. My mm-hmm. first year in real estate, I did like a like $250,000 in real estate. Some, something close to that, maybe close to the 300. That was it. That, that's all I did my first year. 
my second year, I did about five million. Holy shit! And, wow. And and in the first few months of the year, also, I was still fucking around with music really heavy, so I wasn't even giving it my all until like three or four months in. So you know what I'm saying? Like I I, I like only like straight up maybe like nine or eight months. Um, I I did that much volume and sold that many houses and I did so many showings and because by, by sheer virtue of law of large numbers, I did, um, way more showings than the average agent. I gathered, I, I learned way more information and I, I gathered a lot more knowledge than a, than a normal realtor would just because of, of the high volume of showings and stuff I was doing. Now, how do you, how do you balance? I mean, so how do you, this, how do you start to balance that all out? I mean, in terms of real estate and bro, I I have no idea yet. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm literally, I'm literally working this out now. But I, what I did realize is that with real estate, you can't do real estate part time. And 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 I've I've been doing music so long that it's way easier for me to put music on autopilot and do it just you know whenever I have a couple minutes. Um, and do real estate full time. So I do real estate about 98% of the time and I do music about 2% of the time. And then I still have, have my family, you know what I'm saying? I still have to have families, which is tough. And you know, my kids, my kids miss me more. Um, you know, it's tough cause I'm, I, I work all the time and it's, it's nuts, man. Like you and I are, are sitting here doing this interview and you know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm responding to messages and, and, you know, saying things to my clients and getting showings ready all while we're having this interview. Right. So it's, it's a crazy balance. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I just m- more and more time that goes by. I just f- start digging way more into real estate. I, I'm going to try to ask you this question without trying to sound like I'm trying to be dismissive of the, the art form. Um, but it, so I apologize if it comes out that way, but is, is, do you think not having to, uh, approaching music without having to worry that it's going to be your main financial, you know, component of your life makes it better for you to actually, or less pressure for you to actually write, uh, an album or a song and kind of make you feel more like you're being more legit to yourself, I guess, in terms of the process of art versus like having feel like you have to force a pen, you know, just to make that money. Um, so, you know, you know, you know, the movie, the matrix, are you familiar with it? Yes. You know, you know, the very end where Neo is getting shot up by the agents and all of a sudden he stands up and the agents shoot bullets at him and he stops them in the air. And then all of a sudden he sees binary and then he's fighting the agents with one hand that's how I feel about rap. Like I've gotten to a point now where, and everyone who's in the studio with me, I write so effortlessly. It's almost a fucking joke. Like I, 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 I write so fast and I write so effortlessly and I'll write concepts. I'll write stories. I'll write different things. And it, it's just gotten to the point now where it, it's, it's nothing for me. I write in the car when I'm driving and piece it all together. I'll write in the shower in my head, then piece it all together. Um, I'll write it while I'm doing other shit and, and none of it. It's, it's not a challenge to me anymore to make songs. And, and it's, it's funny because it's not like I've fallen off and I'm just not giving any effort. 
it's just it, it's for some reason it's just it, it all clicked and, and it's taken me a long time to get to this because even five or six years ago i wasn't this comfortable with it and and now it's just to the point where it's like i said it's it's, it's effortless so so music and plus the other thing too is that what a lot of people who, who know me know i have a massive amount of music already recorded like i had like a tupac work ethic and and i recorded so i have multiple albums that are done or being worked on i have about five projects right now and um i have two that are pretty much done totally done i have uh, another two that i'm working on and then another one that i'm just beginning to work on so for me to do real estate i i invest all of my time and i have to really focus on that and be razor sharp with that but the music just the music's on autopilot it just steers itself stop uh he's an incredible artist a producer uh does fucking everything uh apathy uh thank you so much man for taking your time i know we, we talked for quite a while but thank you man i really appreciate it i love i love listening to all the interviews you do and i I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Call me Charlie Bucket. Attitude is fuck it. No golden ticket, so I'm balling on the budget. And rap money's bullshit. Nothing like it used to be. I used to be used to G's blue through and foolishly. And fuck a nine to five. I live life for rocking these mics. The only time I wake up early is for court dates or flights. I'm living check to check, but I ain't talking nights. I'm leaking money like BP with oil pipes. It's funny how it makes you feel like you ain't a man. Trying to justify why you're making payment plans. I never made it because I never tried to make you dance. I'm making ends meet while Diddy's making bands. I want to thank my fans, the ones who show respect. I'm like Projects and Prague living check to check. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.